Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Amy Lynn Bradley, a woman who went missing from a Royal Caribbean cruise ship in 1998. This case has a lot of twists and turns. We have conflicting statements from the man who is believed to have last seen Amy. We have conflicting statements from the crew on the ship. And we have multiple sightings of Amy after she went missing. But we have no Amy. Her family has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and dedicated their lives to trying to figure out what happened to her. This is the case of Amy Lynn Bradley. Amy was born on May 12, 1974 in Petersburg, Virginia, to her parents Ron and Iva. A few years later, she would become a big sister when her brother Brad was born. The two would grow up to be very close, and Brad definitely looked up to her and tried his best to follow in his big sister's footsteps. Amy's parents describe her as a fireball and extremely focused. She lettered in five sports in high school and received a ton of scholarship offers from a variety of colleges. Ultimately, Amy chose to stay closer to home and enrolled at Longwood College in Farmville, Virginia, which was about an hour away from her parents' house. She was actually the first student in the history of the college to obtain a full athletic scholarship. Although Amy was extremely talented in a variety of sports, she was chosen to play for the school's basketball team. And it seems that Amy was very drawn to basketball in particular, because she would actually get a tattoo of the Tasmanian Devil from Looney Tunes spinning a basketball on her shoulder. This will be important to remember later on. She graduated in 1996 and took a few years off of school but by 1998, she was making plans to get her master's degree in sports psychology. At this time, Amy was 23 years old, and it seemed like her life was in full swing and going pretty well. In addition to deciding to get her master's degree, she had a new apartment and finally got the dog of her dreams, an English bulldog named Bailey. By all accounts, Amy was thriving and excited about all of the new things in her life. In early March of 1998, Amy's father Ron was gifted a seven-day Caribbean cruise by his employer. This cruise would set sail on March 21st from Puerto Rico. From there, the ship would travel to Aruba, Curacao, St. Thomas, and back to Puerto Rico on Saturday, March 28th. Amy's parents Ron and Iva were super excited about this, but Amy was a bit apprehensive. Despite swimming her entire life and being a swim coach, the idea of this huge ship in open waters scared her. But she decides to go anyway, and so does her brother Brad. Iva and Ron are thrilled. They get packed, they book their plane tickets, and by March 21st, 1998, they were in Puerto Rico, ready to board the Rhapsody of the Seas cruise ship from Royal Caribbean Cruises. This ship was pretty new, being built just the year prior in 1997. It's also 
huge at about a thousand feet long. It has nearly 1,000 guest rooms and can hold about 2,000 passengers. Just for comparison, the largest cruise ship in the world is Harmony of the Seas, also from Royal Caribbean Cruises, and this ship is 1,188 feet long. Both ships are larger than the Titanic, just to give you a reference point. Also, I think that this is a great time to mention that full disclosure, I went on my first boat just a few weeks ago, and it was a small boat. So although I did do some research on cruises, please forgive me if I get some boat or cruise terminology wrong. Knowing the size of the ship will help in understanding how difficult it would be to search this thing, especially thoroughly, but we'll get to that later. The Bradley family boards the ship, checks into room 8564, and they have a great weekend. They're enjoying the food, the drinks, they're taking pictures, and they're partaking in massive amounts of activities and entertainment available to them on the ship. On Monday, March 23rd, the ship docks in Aruba, and the family spends the day exploring the island. Then they head back to the ship to have this big, fancy dinner. They get all dressed up, Amy is in a beautiful black dress, and Brad is in a full tux. They pose for pictures and enjoy their meal. After dinner, the family goes to a party on the upper deck. They were drinking and dancing, and Brad even won the limbo contest that night. But after what sounds like a very full day, at about 1am on now the morning of Tuesday, March 24th, Iva and Ron call it a night. It's also around this time that the ship sets sail for their next stop, Curacao, which is about 70 miles away. But Brad and Amy aren't ready to go to bed, so they decide to go to the ship's 24-hour dance club. At this point, Amy is in a different outfit, changing out of the dress and into what looks like a white t-shirt and either shorts or a skirt. I've seen some reports that say that she was in men's clothing, but after watching and re-watching a compilation video of Amy's last known whereabouts on the ship, to me, it looks like regular women's clothing from the 90s. But I could be wrong. Either way, Amy is in something more comfortable and is pretty much dancing the night away. And specifically dancing with a man named Alistair Douglas, also known as Yellow. Yellow was the bass player of the band Blue Orchid. Yellow and his band worked on the ship providing entertainment to the guests, and apparently also getting super friendly with them. Through video footage, you can see that their dancing kind of evolves throughout the night. At first, they're just kind of near each other dancing, then Amy is in front of him dancing while he's behind her up against her, and eventually they start holding hands. It seems like the two just really hit it off. Around 3.30 in the morning, Brad heads back to the room and he swipes his room key at exactly 3.35 a.m. At this exact time, Amy is seen on video dancing, waiting to get into the elevator. And by 3.40 a.m., she swipes her room key and joins her brother on the balcony of their suite. They smoke a cigarette, and after a few minutes, Brad said he's going to bed. But Amy is still wide awake and feeling a little seasick so she tells Brad that she's going to stay on the balcony for a while to get some fresh air. Brad tells Amy he loves her and heads inside. At about 5.30am, the ship arrives in Curacao, and Ron wakes up, but he stays in bed. He kind of just lifts his head and looks around, and he sees Amy out on the balcony. 
seeing that Amy's back and everything appears to be fine, he puts his head back down on the pillow and snoozes for about another 20 minutes. He finally wakes up at about 5.50 a.m. to get ready to have breakfast on the island, and he notices that Amy is no longer on the balcony. But he figures that she's probably just up on the deck taking pictures or maybe getting some coffee. And there's good reason for this. Amy actually brought her camera and 15 rolls of film with her on this trip to do a project. She wanted to take a bunch of great photos on the trip and use them to put under glass on top of this trunk she got for her new apartment. Around this time, the ship was set to be passing under the Queen Juliana Bridge, so it was a great time to capture pictures of the bridge and the colorful buildings surrounding the canal. So Ron gets up, he gets dressed, and he heads to the deck but he doesn't see Amy there. He's still not super worried at first, so he just kind of starts looking around the ship for her. But as the time begins to pass, he starts to become very concerned. And after an hour of searching, he is frantic. At about 7am, Ron runs into the security chief of the ship, Lou Costello, and he tells him that he can't find Amy. At this point, Ron runs back to the family suite to wake up his wife, Iva, and tell her that Amy is missing. Iva says that she knew exactly how serious it was because she had never seen him that frantic. And according to her, Ron didn't even look like himself. So she jumps out of bed and they both go meet with the cruise ship security staff and the captain. This is now close to 7.30 and the ship is just minutes away from letting the passengers off to the island of Curacao. So they beg them to make an announcement about Amy, to share her picture, and to keep the doors sealed until they can conduct a thorough search of the ship. But the captain says absolutely not. He will not make an announcement, he will not share a picture, and he certainly is not keeping the doors closed. He says that he will not alarm the other passengers, but he does agree to help them search quietly. In my opinion, this decision, this lack of urgency, is what sealed Amy Lynn Bradley's fate. In my research, I found a 1998 New York Times article written by Douglas France, and he stated, quote, Her case illustrates the difficulties that can arise when a possible crime occurs outside of the immediate reach of law enforcement authorities, and how cruise lines struggle to balance investigations with protection of their reputations, end quote. And I think he hit the nail right on the head with that one. So just minutes after the Bradleys beg to not let people off the ship, they do it anyway and hundreds of people start filing off the boat onto the island of Curacao. While everyone is enjoying the island, the crew and the Bradley family search the ship. When Ron checks their room again, he does an inventory of Amy's belongings. And I've seen some conflicting reports about whether or not Amy left barefoot, but it appears that the sandals that she was previously wearing were left on the balcony. The only items that were missing were her lighter cigarettes, room key, $100 she had in her pocket, and her camera with a single roll of film in it. The remaining 14 rolls of film that Amy brought on the trip were recovered from the room. Around 5.30pm, the captain tells the Bradley family that they have searched every inch of the ship for Amy, 
and that she is definitely not on board. At this point, the captain suggests that maybe Amy fell overboard, but her family just doesn't believe this story. Not only did Amy not like going near the railings because she was scared, these railings were also up to chest level on Amy. Amy's brother Brad insists that there's absolutely no way Amy got close enough to the railing to fall over. The captain then suggests that maybe Amy committed suicide by jumping over the railing. And again, the family is like, absolutely not. Amy just got a new apartment, she has Bailey the English Bulldog waiting for her there, and she just got accepted into a master's program. There was no way in their minds that Amy could have ever killed herself. The captain's like, okay, well, maybe she's just on the island. And again, by this time, it's about 5.30pm, and the ship is setting sail for St. Thomas at 9.30pm giving them only four hours to search the island. So the Bradleys scramble to get off the boat and start searching. They try contacting the U.S. Embassy, but they were closed. And they reach out to the FBI, who agrees to help, but they can't get there for at least 24 hours. After searching for a few hours, they come up with nothing. At this point, the Bradleys have a crucial decision to make. Do they stay in Curacao to look for Amy, or do they get back on the boat to search for her there? This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince, too, is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. 
but it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. After much deliberation, they decide that since the boat was searched thoroughly, they will stay on the island and continue to search there. So at 9.30pm, the Rhapsody of the Seas leaves Curacao without the Bradleys, and it sets sail for St. Thomas. A few hours later, the Bradleys get a phone call to their hotel room. It's the FBI, and they tell them that they've made contact with the crew on the ship, and they were told that there was not a thorough search of the ship like they had been told. Instead, the crew only searched the common areas and the restrooms. In my research, I found something that I thought was pretty interesting. In an official report released by Royal Caribbean Cruises to the New York Times, the report would state that the Bradleys told the crew about Amy being missing after the passengers were let off the ship and that there was, in fact, a thorough cabin-by-cabin search for Amy. So either Royal Caribbean Cruises is lying, or the Bradley family and the FBI are. But understandably, the Bradleys are extremely upset, because not only do they feel like they've been lied to, but now they feel like they've made the wrong decision by leaving the ship. However, the FBI does agree to help them get to St. Thomas and back on the ship. It was a race to get there, but they do get on right before it leaves and they go confront the captain. And they don't hold back. They say, hey, you lied to us. Now you have to deal with the FBI and you better cooperate. It's now March 26th, two days since Amy has been missing, and the FBI conduct a thorough search of the ship. They went around with Amy's picture, asking people if they've seen her. They interview several of the guests, and they separate Brad, Iva, and Ron to conduct separate interviews of them as well. While the Bradleys are just walking around the ship trying to talk to people and hopefully find Amy, two teenage girls run up to them in the hallway and ask where they've been. They explain to them that they just got back on the ship and ask them what's going on. The girls proceed to tell them that they saw Amy the morning that she disappeared, around 5.45 a.m., which, as you might remember, is right in that window between Ron lifting his head to see Amy on the balcony and her being gone 20 minutes later. So Ron and Iva are like, okay, what did you see? Tell us everything. And the girls tell them that they saw Amy with Alistair Douglas, a.k.a. Yellow, the bass player from the ship's band. When they saw them, Yellow handed Amy a dark drink that they assumed was soda or coffee. They also say that they saw the pair on the big glass elevator going back up to the dance club. According to the Bradley family's website for Amy, witnesses would later testify in front of a grand jury that they last saw Yellow leaving the upper deck alone in the elevator. This now makes Yellow the last person to see Amy. The family and the FBI are all over this, 
And when Brad hears that they're looking for this guy, Yellow, he remembers seeing them dance together. But more importantly, a pretty strange interaction with him the morning that Amy went missing. That morning, Brad was sitting by the pool when Yellow approaches him and says something to the effect of, I'm sorry to hear about your sister. At the time, Brad didn't think much of it. But after reflecting on it and telling his parents, they freak out. Because on that morning, no one knew Amy was missing other than the family and the ship's security team. When I first heard this piece of information, I immediately gave Yellow the benefit of the doubt. Like I mentioned, I've never been on a cruise ship, but from what I can gather, people tend to get pretty close on these things. Kind of like summer camp, which I've never been to either, but again, I understand that people form friendships by doing all of these scheduled activities together. Just like the two teenage girls that recognized Iva and Ron. So my first thought is that maybe when the family was searching the ship that morning, they were stopping to ask people if they'd seen Amy. So maybe Yellow heard about Amy kind of through the grapevine. But then Yellow is interviewed by the FBI, and he says he had no idea Amy was missing. He also says that he was woken up by the cruise line manager at 6am and was asked about Amy. From there, he says that his and his bandmates' rooms were searched. Now, 6am would have been an hour before Ron notified security that Amy was missing. And according to the FBI, only common areas of the ship were searched. On top of all of that mess, he also says that he last saw Amy around 1am. Which, of course, we know that there is both video evidence and witness testimony to prove that Yellow and Amy were dancing and holding hands until much later in the morning than 1am. So the FBI gives Yellow a polygraph test, which is ultimately inconclusive. And by the end, they just don't have enough evidence to hold him on charges related to Amy, and he's let go. During this test, Ron Bradley was actually waiting outside of the room, and he said, quote, He came out of the interview smiling, with his thumbs up to his band members, like everything was cool. It made me feel like I wanted to strangle him. I knew what was going on. I knew that he had been with Amy. End quote. So the FBI is like, okay, what the heck is going on? And they try to piece together some information to get a timeline of Amy's whereabouts that morning. They get in contact with the photographers who take the professional photos of you to sell them back to you later, because they want to get every single picture of Amy. But much to their surprise, every photo of Amy is missing. So they're like, okay, well, did you lose a bunch of photos? Like, what is going on? And the staff tells them no. It appears that out of almost 2,000 passengers on board, Amy Lynn Bradley's are the only pictures that are missing. On top of that, the photographer from the night before Amy went missing remembers taking pictures of Amy at their fancy dinner and printing those pictures out but ultimately, they were never able to pinpoint what happened to the pictures or who was responsible for them being gone. During this time, there's also something else going on that is super strange. Royal Caribbean Cruises hired a man named Chris Fenwick to capture fun video footage of the trip. This footage was to be compiled and shown in the theater at the end of the cruise. So he went around filming people having a good time, laughing, dancing, eating, etc., including Amy Lynn Bradley. 
but Chris gets a call from the person in charge of this project, and they tell Chris that he needs to edit out all footage of Amy for the final showing. Now, this does make sense to me. They don't want to show her in the final video montage because it's obviously very sad and will only further bring attention to the fact that they've lost a guest. I get it. The thing is, on top of this, our man Lou, the head of security, tells Chris that he needs the master tapes. And Chris says no. He explains that he's seen the AV equipment on the ship, and not only do they not even have the technology to review these master tapes, but he also tells him that he never gives these away anyway, and he offers to make copies of the tapes instead. Lou is kind of agitated and says, you know, well, the FBI wants them. And Chris says, okay, well, then have the FBI contact me. And the conversation ends. It wouldn't be until a few years later when Chris sees Amy's story on TV that he realizes that the FBI never contacted him for the tapes and that the cruise line was probably just trying to cover their tracks since he has so much footage of Amy with one of their employees, Yellow. So Chris actually ends up posting a compilation of this footage to YouTube and it's still there today, making Chris one of my personal heroes in this story. But jumping back to March of 1998, with Yellow changing his story so many times, and the crew members giving some variations of their story, the FBI begins to believe that this could have been a planned kidnapping conspiracy and that maybe Amy was being watched and was lured by Yellow to later be sold on the island of Curacao. But unfortunately, there just is not enough evidence to charge anyone on the ship. So on Saturday, March 28, 1998, the Rhapsody of the Seas completes its journey and docks back in Puerto Rico, and the Bradleys fly home to Virginia without Amy. When the Bradleys get back home, they waste no time trying to find Amy. They do a ton of interviews for the media, they offer a $260,000 reward, they consulted with psychics, they create a website, and they even hired private detectives to get back onto the cruise ship to look for anything that might help them find Amy. They also get the two used rolls of film from Amy developed, but it was mostly just scenic photos of Puerto Rico and Aruba. Nothing really that could help them find her. Four weeks go by and there's nothing. So on April 21st, 1998, Ron and Brad fly back to Curacao to look for Amy. They rent a car and drive everywhere they can to hand out flyers and talk to people. After a full day of searching, Brad and Ron are exhausted and they head back to the hotel room, unsure if anything would actually come of this trip. But the next day, they realize that their efforts paid off because they get a tip that would change the course of the investigation forever. Less than 24 hours after Brad and Ron got back to Curacao to search for Amy, they get a call from a man who drives a taxi on the island. On the morning that Amy went missing, he was parked near the ship waiting for a potential fare to come off the boat. And he says that just minutes after passengers begin to file out, a woman runs up to his taxi and is frantically asking him where she can find a phone. This man says that he will never forget this woman's green eyes. And yes, Amy had green eyes. This sparks an even larger search for Amy with the help of local police. They search huts, boats, the water, everywhere they can. 
I watched an interview Brad did for the TV show Vanished with Beth Holloway, and he said that when he was in Curacao looking for Amy, that he heard Amy call his name from a passing van. So Brad and Ron literally turn the car around immediately and start chasing after the van. They go through these narrow hillside roads and into a neighborhood and finally catch up with them. But Amy wasn't there. It's just a guy alone in his van. Brad says that to this day, he's not sure if he heard Amy or if he heard what he wanted to hear. This broke my heart. I can tell you that when you have a missing loved one, you see and hear them almost everywhere you go, especially when they first go missing. You are looking at every face, every walk, and listening to every voice. Sometimes it just feels familiar and you have to do a double take. Unfortunately, after a week of searching the island, they don't find Amy, and they catch a plane back to Virginia. But before they can even get home, there's another possible break in the case. When Brad and Ron land in Miami for a layover, they call home to Iva, and she tells them that the harbor chief of Curacao called to tell her that a body of a Caucasian female with brown hair matching Amy's description was found. But it'll take 24 hours to confirm that it's a match to Amy. After an excruciating 24 hours, they get the call. It's not Amy. In fact, the remains don't even belong to a woman, they belong to a man. And on top of that, it wasn't actually a body like they'd been told. It was just a piece of spine and a pelvic girdle. I couldn't find if they were ever able to identify who they belonged to, but they definitely weren't Amy's. This was bittersweet for the Bradleys. As much as they wanted answers, there was hope that Amy was still alive. So they go back to the media and get to work searching for her. After researching this case, I have to say, this family not only exhausted every resource, but they also got extremely creative. They keep in contact with the Curacao police, the FBI, and cruise ship officials throughout the Caribbean. They also contact ham radio operators and plan a mass email marketing campaign to thousands of personal emails in the Caribbean and South America. But there's still no sign of Amy. It wouldn't be until May of 1999, over a year after she goes missing, that the next big lead came in. And it was huge. After seeing a segment about Amy on America's Most Wanted, a man named David Carmichael comes forward to say that he saw Amy. And bless his heart, he didn't even want the reward money. He just wanted to help the Bradley family. But David says that about five months after Amy went missing, he was on the beach in Curacao washing off some scuba diving equipment when he saw a woman matching Amy's description. I wasn't able to find a great soundbite of David telling this story, but I was able to find a transcript from a 2001 interview he did with the Bradley family on CNN where he describes what happened. Quote, I was actually diving on the island of Burso in August of 1998. We had just returned from a late afternoon in a dive location called Port of Maria. It's a dive location that's set up for divers and for people to go out and sort of swim, and they have a small cafe there. We were in the process of taking off our dive gear when I noticed three people walking up on the beach. There was two guys and a girl. 
a white guy, a black guy, and the girl was trailing them. As they passed us, I turned around to my buddy, who was maybe 15 or 20 feet away from me, and I yelled to him and asked if he had a piece of my dive gear. And just as I did that, they had just passed me. The girl spun around, came right back towards me. She had sunglasses on the top of her head. She stared right at me as if she was about to say something. The black fellow came into my field of vision and motioned her away. Didn't touch her. He motioned her away. She turned around, put her head down, and followed them over to a small cafe area where they sat down and ordered drinks. They were actually by the bar. And every once in a while, she was facing outwards towards us. So every once in a while, she would kind of sort of look over towards me and then look back down at the ground. She was sort of resting against a bar stool, sort of looking out towards us. At that point in time, my buddy and I, we went, got a beverage, sat down. Actually, quite a ways from us, we couldn't hear what they were talking about, and we left before they did. End quote. David would end up flying out to the Bradley home to meet with them about this sighting, and he described Amy's tattoos and mannerisms to a T. He is 100% sure that that was Amy, and her parents believe him. Unfortunately, it had already been almost a year since David saw Amy on the beach. So when investigators went back to check out the area and the cafe, they couldn't find anything related to Amy. But this was still huge. This confirmed exactly what the Bradleys were thinking, that Amy had been kidnapped and was being held against her will. It gave them hope that she was still alive and could be recovered. Just a few months later, the Bradleys get another break. They get an email from a man named Frank Jones, who saw Amy's story and said that he wanted to help. He explains to the Bradleys that he is a former U.S. Army Special Forces officer, and that he has a team of ex-Navy SEALs and ex-Army Rangers who could help them find and rescue Amy. Iva Bradley told ABC News, quote, He told me that he'd put Amy on his own back and swim her out of there. End quote. At this point, it had been about a year and a half since Amy went missing, and they had so much hope that she could be alive, especially after David Carmichael's report of seeing Amy on the beach. And on top of this, the Bradley family was less than thrilled with the work of the FBI, so they are like, yes, please help us. And Frank Jones says, absolutely, you know, this is what we do but he warns them that this will take a lot of time and a lot of money. So, the Bradleys dig into their savings, they solicit donations, and they make it happen. Jones gets right to work on a new lead in Curacao. A woman named Judith Margarita said that she knew that Amy was being held captive by heavily armed Colombian guards in a housing complex encased in barbed wire. She says that she regularly sees Amy there, at the grocery store, and going to the gym. She also says that she was often accompanied by a man with long blonde hair and a sleeve of tattoos on one arm. She is also able to accurately describe all of Amy's tattoos, and reported that one day she heard Amy humming a specific lullaby. And when Iva Bradley heard this, she immediately recognized it as a lullaby that she used to sing to Amy when she was a baby. So again, the family is convinced that this is it. They found Amy. Frank Jones sends two of his men down there to speak with Judith and check out the lead. They set up surveillance points in all of the places that Judith told them that she saw Amy. 
and they watched a dark green SUV believed to have been driven by the man that abducted her. But after a week, the men have to abandon the mission when 10 men start shooting at them. This didn't deter Frank Jones. He sent more men back to the island and provided a bunch of reports to the Bradleys about sightings of Amy and her whereabouts. By the fall of 2000, Frank Jones goes to the Bradley family and says, listen, it's time. We need to get Amy out now. But it's going to cost a lot of money. And he requests an additional $100,000. The Bradleys are scrambling. They've already exhausted their savings and spent a lot of donated money. So they end up going to Ron's boss and they ask him for the money and a private jet to get Amy home after she's recovered. And being the best boss that I've seen since Elle McPherson in the Holly Clark case, he agrees. But before they do all of this, they go to Frank Jones and say, listen, we are willing to make anything happen, pay any amount of money for you to bring Amy home to us, but we need some proof that she's actually there. And Frank Jones says, no problem. And he sends them pictures of a man with long blonde hair and a woman on the beach from behind. And once they see the tattoo on the woman's ankle and the Tasmanian devil on her shoulder, the Bradleys pay Frank Jones and tell him to get their daughter home now. So the Bradleys fly down to Florida and they wait for Frank's call. Iva Bradley said that during the week that they were waiting for that call, she only left the hotel room twice, terrified that she would miss it. But the call from Frank Jones never comes. Instead, they get a call from a man named Tim Buckholtz, saying that Frank Jones was a liar and a fraud. Tim tells the Bradleys that he was working for Frank Jones, watching the house where Amy was supposedly being held, and he never saw anything. He never saw Amy. And whoever lived in that house appeared to be a totally normal family. Tim says that he heard Frank Jones telling the Bradley family that his people were watching the house right that moment. And that's when he knew it was all a lie, and that Frank Jones was just using the Bradleys' money to live an extravagant life on the island. After this, another man came forward named Jono Sink. And this man told ABC News that he was the man in the photos sent to the Bradley family and he admitted to wearing a blonde wig and pretending to be Amy's captor. And the woman in the photo was absolutely not Amy, just another acquaintance of Frank Jones with fake tattoos. Apparently, they went to a tattoo artist, showed them pictures of Amy's tattoos, and had them recreated into stencils, and then placed them strategically on this woman's body to match Amy's. The Bradleys also discover that the original tip from Judith Margarita was a flat-out lie. Her son actually worked for a security firm in Curacao and came forward to tell them that it was all a scam to steal from them. Though, I do want to note that Judith maintains her innocence. And I was never able to find an explanation as to how she found which lullaby Iva Bradley used to sing to Amy as a baby. But I do suspect that Iva most likely spoke about it in one of their countless interviews with the media. So, this entire time, the Bradleys were just being scammed. It turns out that Frank Jones was never even in the Special Forces. And in total, he stole over $200,000 in this scheme. But by 2002, Frank Jones was arrested in Virginia. And ultimately, he pled guilty to mail fraud. 
he was sentenced to five years in prison and was ordered to pay back all the money he stole. But of course, this could never make up for all of the time that they lost looking for Amy. Luckily, it wasn't long before another person came forward with a much more credible sighting of Amy. This time, it was from a Navy officer who was stationed in Curaçao in 1999, the year after Amy went missing. He says that one night he was in a brothel when a woman came up to him and said that her name was Amy Bradley and she needed help. So he asks her, what's going on? How can I help? And she just said, I need help. I can't get out. But someone motions for Amy to get away from the man, kind of like what happened on the beach. Unfortunately, because this man wasn't supposed to be in the brothel and could get in big trouble if he came forward with a story, he waited about two years before coming forward with it. And when investigators went to check out the brothel, they can confirm it existed, but it had since burned to the ground. Although the Bradleys had to face their worst fears that Amy had most likely been a victim of sex trafficking, they were thankful that she could still be alive, which meant they could still try to save her. But it wouldn't be until four years later, in 2005, that they get the next big lead in the case. This is when an anonymous source sends the Bradley family photos of a woman that they think might be Amy. These pictures were grabbed from an adult website based in the Caribbean that advertised escorts. The pictures show a woman with long, brown, kind of wild hair and heavy makeup posing on a bed. Iva Bradley immediately believes that this is her daughter. It wasn't the same soft, innocent Amy that she knew before, but it was Amy. But before they get too excited like they had in the past, they want to make 100% sure it's her. So they call forensic detective Wesley Neville to help. Neville is a certified forensic artist at the International Association for Identification. He takes these newly submitted photos and photos of Amy and goes over these pictures inch by inch, comparing and layering them over each other. And he tells the Bradleys that he is willing to bet his career that the girl in those photos is Amy. So investigators get to work trying to track down the source of these photos, but ultimately they were never able to track down the exact location of the IP address used to create the website. For the Bradleys, this is another dead end, but another reason to hold out hope that Amy is alive. They get another lead just a few months later in December of 2005. This comes from a woman named Judy Maurer, who says that she saw Amy nine months prior. Judy and her husband were on a cruise and docked in Barbados. While out exploring, Judy goes into a department store to use the restroom. But while she's in a stall, she hears a bunch of men come in, and she panics, thinking that they might be coming in to hurt her, so she puts her feet up on the toilet seat, stays quiet, and does her best to not be seen. While she's hiding, she hears a man say something to the effect of, at 11 o'clock, you better be ready to go. I'm warning you, you better cooperate. Don't mess this up. And he just keeps repeating this again and again. Eventually, Judy sees the men leave the restroom, so she carefully opens the stall door and sees a woman who she describes as being in her early 30s, cowering by the sink, also looking like she's about to cry. 
Judy starts talking to her, asking her where she's from. And softly, the woman says, Virginia. Judy says, what's your name? And the woman again, very softly, says, Amy. And Judy says, oh, my daughter's name is Amy. And at this point, that woman gets terrified. And she gets closer to Judy, motioning for her to be quiet. Within seconds, they hear banging on the bathroom door. And then the door opens just a few inches. Judy says that the woman just grimaced and stood there frozen. At this point, Judy is terrified and books it out of the bathroom, passing the men waiting outside. Unfortunately, Judy doesn't report this to anyone, but nine months later, she's reading an article about missing persons and sees the photos from the website that are believed to be Amy, and she realizes, oh my gosh, this is the woman. This is the woman I saw in the bathroom. That is Amy Lynn Bradley. Judy calls the Bradley family, who calls the FBI, and they investigate the lead. But after nine months, no one at the department store remembers the incident or anyone matching Amy's description. But sketches of Amy and her alleged abductors are created. Unfortunately, this is kind of where the trail goes cold. There was a jawbone that was found about five years later that got a lot of media attention. But the Bradleys never believed it was Amy's, and it turns out that it wasn't. The Bradley family did try to sue Royal Caribbean Cruises a few times, stating in one lawsuit, quote, Based upon witnesses, someone on the vessel grabbed her, held her, and then pulled her off in the last port, four days later. End quote. But Royal Caribbean Cruises states that although they sympathize with the family, there's simply no evidence to prove that any crime or foul play was involved in Amy's disappearance and they insist that they acted appropriately and responsibly at all times. As far as I could find, Amy Bradley's family was never able to successfully sue the company. In 2016, the Rhapsody of the Seas was completely remodeled and continues to sail to this day. In 2018, the FBI launched a large media campaign for the 20-year anniversary of Amy's disappearance and they continue to ask the public to come forward with any information or sightings of Amy. Which brings me right to our call to action. This one is easy, guys. Just share her picture. I know that Amy Lynn Bradley's story has gotten a ton of media coverage, but in every single case that I cover, I get at least one message from someone saying that they've never heard of the case before listening to the episode. And that one person that hasn't heard Amy's story might just have that one piece of information that can bring her home. There are so many close calls in this case. This family and Amy deserve justice. So please take a moment to share Amy's picture. Amy Lynn Bradley would be 47 years old as of the day before publishing this episode. So I have to say, happy birthday, Amy, wherever you are. Amy is a Caucasian female with brown hair and green eyes. She is 5 feet 6 inches tall and weighed approximately 120 pounds when she went missing. She has four tattoos, a Tasmanian devil on her shoulder, a sun on her lower back, a Chinese symbol on her right ankle, and a gecko around her navel. Anyone with information about Amy is urged to call their local FBI office. But, as always, thank you, I love you, and 
I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 